When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Hello and welcome to the Voom podcast from Virgin Media Business. I'm Nikki Beatty and we're back for another round of entrepreneurial tales, tips and advice. Now, usually, if you talk to someone who started their own business, they'll tell you that life as a founder isn't always glamorous. Today, though... Our guests might argue slightly differently, as in fact, for them, it's the whole point of their business. We're focusing in on beauty and well-being. And I'm really thrilled to be joined today by entrepreneurs who represent different ends of this vast and varied industry. Later in the show, we'll be hearing a story of an accidental entrepreneur who's taking the world of organic and ethical cosmetics by storm. My first guest in the studio is perhaps best known for being one of Dragon's Den's most successful failures. <laughs> he appeared on the flagship BBC show nearly nine years ago. He was laughed at by the likes of Peter Jones and Deborah Needham for trying to reinvent the wheel, or in this case, the hairbrush, with his product, Tangle Teaser. Skip forward to the present day and the brush that was dismissed as a waste of time and a harebrained idea is now a celebrated international success, shipping something like a million units a month and with a cool business valuation approaching the £200 million mark. Well, this is an incredible story and I have his product in my handbag, on my dressing table and I'm very pleased to welcome Tangle Teaser's founder, Sean Paul. Hello. Hello, and what an introduction. Well, it's just absolutely the facts, isn't it? I didn't need to even big you up. Yeah, obviously, being out there in the public and the rejection from the Dragon's Den and the product being so successful, I mean, it it adds to the story. And it is, it's it's an amazing success story, one that still continues. I mean, I still consider myself an entrepreneur. You know, we've launched a new product, so it certainly isn't over for me yet. And I'm thoroughly enjoying it as much as I did when I first started. Well, that's what we like to hear. And joining Sean in the studio, I'm really pleased to have another entrepreneur approaching the industry from what we would call a disruptive angle, combining tech with a day out at the salon, our next guest has launched an app that allows you to tap into the best hair, nail, massage, spa services directly from your smartphone. Heralded as London's best beauty concierge service and named Ruby, that's with two U's. Welcome to the founder, Venetia Archer. It's good to have you here, Venetia. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And by way of an introduction, Venetia, perhaps you can explain to us exactly how Ruby works. Yeah, absolutely. So what we do is we offer app users the ability to make beauty appointments at home and in the salon with a strong network of beauty therapists. So we do hair, nails, massage, all of the above, all with a curated quality um, set of beauticians. So our USP is very much quality. Um, We appreciate that our clients are strapped for time, they're busy, and they don't want to waste an hour having a poor massage. 
So we've got a great, great, great network of individuals who work with us. Um, we work with Cara Delevingne's makeup artist. We have some really fantastic nail artists, for example. So it's a really, really interesting platform and it's really, a really fun thing to be doing. So does it only work in London or can I use this elsewhere? Currently just in London, however. You've got to start somewhere, space. haven't you? Definitely. Good place to start. Exactly. <laughs> Good the place to start. Yeah. Lots of girls needing to get their nails done. And boys. And boys. And um, how do you make your money? So we take a commission. So it's purely commission-based um, on the appointments. That's 25% for our at-home therapists. And so what about a salon? If I booked through to a salon, yes. well, do they benefit in some way, apart from getting my business? Yeah, absolutely. So we also have a salon offering, which has a slightly different commission model. And that's very popular. However, interestingly, actually, at-home appointments make for 80% of our business. So we've really noticed a, a shift in attitudes towards beauty. So it's the Uber of the beauty world in some ways. Yes, that's the dream. Well, <laughs> it's going there already. Sean, before you launched Tangle Teaser, you were a hugely successful hairstylist, colorist. Uh, hair colorist, correct, yeah. Yeah. And do you think that Ruby would have been useful to you back then? Um, I, I was pretty busy all the time, but most certainly, yes. I tended to be a hair colorist. I run the business within the business. I, when I came to launch Tangle Teaser, because of the perhaps the commitment and the dedication that I put into the industry, mm. a lot of that actually played a very strong part within the business. I know um, I could handle anything up to 13 clients a day. Yeah. The thing about doing that, you can't stop. It's almost like getting first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear, and, and away you go. Mm. Obviously, that's fed in between different stylists, say. So I'd be colouring hair, going to a stylist, and then a stylist may be cutting, then passing the client to me. So unbeknownst to me, for 15, 20 years, I've been doing a very good case for logistics and supply chain mm -hmm. management. <laughs> well, that's a very big phrase. I, I, the, yeah, <laughs> do you know what? I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. And the actual operations that we have in place for manufacturing mm. today are the very same ones that I put in when we first started. So it's just building on a very Absolutely. successful so, model. Yeah. So before we go on to talk about mm. how the business has developed, let's go back to the start of your story. Mm. How did you come up with the concept and idea of Tangle Teaser? I think it's interesting because here we have some recognising that in the world of beauty, people want to basically, their time is limited. They're saying, I want this quality of service and, and basically where can I get that? Mm. Not, not a guessing game or even a recommendation from a friend or even like with social media, they want an actual professional to say rather than maybe even just a blogger this is where you need to go this is where I'm going to send you and for me it was obviously my dedication to hair I absolutely loved working with the hair I love my job obviously being a hair colorist I was very conscious about hair condition I remember the first color I applied when I was younger the the colors got better quality but yet the hair was still getting awfully tangled mm. with that being a very concern for me so what I would do is I developed a very unique way unique to me to detangle her. I would take a conventional comb and a conventional brush and use it in an unconventional manner. Oh, you go into more detail. <laughs> Do you know what? It came about by chance. So you were oh. just doing something one day and you realised it unpicked the hair. Uh, okay. Boston Hair Salon, very small Vidal Sassoon Salon. The backwashers were behind me, so I was very privy to all the shampoos that were going on. Experienced assistant is shampooing a very long-haired lady. Now, she's got long hair. You know she can handle it. That's why she's got long hair. Mm. And all of a sudden, I turn around and I can see him in the mirror. I'm thinking, oh, my God, that is just a mess. He's got it in one hell of a mess. I'm going to have to intervene. I'm going to have to intervene. So I just picks up this hair and I'm thinking, well, oh, don't comb it. <laughs> don't comb it. And I just started shaking it and just kind of tapping it. And, and to my surprise, I was thinking, 
oh, wow, this, this is kind of untapped. Oh, this is interesting. Mm. So obviously over the months of, or should we say years of doing her hair, I developed that technique. I went on to do it even further over the 10 years. And I was known the king of detangling. So I would <laughs> never actually comb or physically, you know, brush the hair. It was almost like a, an engaging with the actual teeth into the hair, like a tapping action. So you're to coaxing al- it. Absolutely, to allow it naturally to detangle. When I thought, hmm, something's interesting here, what's going on? So I put it into a mathematical equation, as bad as it was. I called it passive resistance. So I basically needed a tool to engage with the hair, but when you started to brush with it, I needed it to be passive. So again, obviously, so that didn't engage and lock the tangles in. And that was my quest, that what I set out to do. And how you did it. You launched your business on your own. Yeah. How did you come up with the product and make the jump from your previous job? As in, you're doing this, you've, you've had that yeah. experience with that client's hair, you've put in the equation. Yeah. When do you finally create the product? The thing to remember is, is that for six months I did a lot of R&D at the British Library at no cost to myself other than obviously reading lots of books and finding out about lots of things. I then took it to the next level. So it was almost like, you know, that these stages that were going, it was it was very verification each time that you're going on the right route. And then when it came to actually working out the methods I needed for manufacturing was injection plastic moulding. And we don't work with plastics, we work with polymers. <laughs> I still know that one. What plastic do you use? Oh no, it's polymers. Oh, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> so enlighten me to the whole new this whole new world. But whilst I was working not directly with design guys, I was working with very knowledgeable people in polymers, and I found them in the yellow pages. So it was that simple. <laughs> uh, Kind of. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm flipping through the yellow pages and, and basically I'm, I know what I'm looking for. And there's this company up in Oxford and it says, we like startup businesses. I said, well, that's me. That's mm. me. And I started to have a much stronger format and a frame to move forward with actually looking at the polymers and speaking to them. So how did you raise the money to make that first prototype? Because it's not a cheap it's, process. Absolutely. It was an organic process, self-financed over three years. Self-financed? How did you have savings? I basically just went out, went out with nothing. I absolutely knew nothing. I was a very successful hair colorist. Um, I worked four days a week in a salon, and then I did a lot of research, obviously, on the other times. I just spent everything on it. The costs came in periodically. Right. Like, you know, there'd be a 5,000 charge here, then you'd be starting with the IP lawyers, and it cost me £68,000 to get a product. I knew I had something, and it cost me £98,000 to get it to market. Wow. And very quickly... Yeah. Did you see from the beginning when you started to detangle that first head of hair yeah. that, that this was business or was it actually your passion to give people great, smooth, um, tangle-free hair? No, it's always looked at a business. I mean, I will be honest here. I mean, I was being realistic with it. So basically I was saying to myself, with my knowledge, I can take this to a hairdressing trade show. So the consumer sector, say, within Boots, where we went, or all that side, would never... It was always to be through the professional hair industry, retail through salons. I can do that. I could get that to that. So for me, no, it was it was always on, a, I would say, a realistic basis because basically it would come out. And the first prototype I got back, don't forget, even I'd not used it. And I, when I used it, I went, God, that's amazing. It's better than I ever thought. I, did, I was expecting something, but don't yeah. forget, I've been this mad guy waving these combs around, and all of a sudden I just went, oh, my God. And that was it, yeah. yeah it was amazing. So 
Basically, Sean had experience as a hairdresser. Mm. Venetia, did you have, do you have a background in beauty or the tech industry before you launched your app, Ruby? Um, Absolutely not. So my former career was very different. I used to work as an analyst in the um, geopolitical risk space. So I, I mean, you know, there's it's there's no bridge, um, and and so so I, I used to work um, in Nairobi, uh, working for um, multinationals, um, different businesses, some governments, etc., which was fantastic and very interesting. And then I moved back to London, and continued to work here as a consultant. And basically, I just saw this gap in the market. I was using Uber. I was using Yplan. I was using all of these apps. And I was thinking, why can't I get my nails done? I'm so busy. I'm running around. I've got all of these meetings, blah, blah, blah. Why can't I just get my manicure to fit in my day? And so I waited and I waited and I waited. So I was like, someone's just going to do this. I just, I can't wait till this app comes out. Anyway, it didn't. And so one day I just woke up and I said, do you know what? I'm going to do this app. I need this app. And so it was essentially out of a desire to use the service. Yeah. Um, and it's just sort of gone from there. So it was very much a passion project to begin with. And it's just grown into this sort of beast. And now, obviously, you know, it's become a proper business. And that's the way that I look at it. But it's really iterated. So when you were working for these multinationals, yeah. were you looking at businesses on a day-to-day basis to understand uh, how you begin a business? Or was it, in your case, ignorance is bliss? Ignorance is absolutely bliss. <laughs> And I was thinking about it today. I thought, had I known on day one what this would be and what I would have to do, would I do it? And I mean, I mean, I, I'd say yes, I would. Although it's just grown to an unimaginable degree, but I love it. It's fantastic and it's fun. So, to you both, what sort of advice would you give to people who are listening right now? looking to make a jump. So for Venetia, for example, it was to a totally different career, but she saw a gap in the market and a market in the gap, evidently. Yeah. And has launched her own app and company. For you, it was part of your world, Sean, but you were extending it. So for people listening there, what's the first thing that you would say that they should consider? (sighs) To be honest with you, whilst we're entrepreneurs and we take risks, Mm. I say you have to eliminate everything that is a risk of you failing. So basically, uh, for me, whilst I was doing the R&G, I was working. So for the three years that um, I did the R&G, I was completely working, like I said, full-time, mm. self-financed. I quit work in August 07 and launched the product as a limited company in October 07. And I took those three months to prepare for the trade show. So basically, all that time, I was still working. Now, when I initially launched the company, everything was out of my two-bedroom flat in Brixton. Yeah. I did all the manufacturing is done in the UK. Mm. Any ideas that are going to work, work closely with people one-on-one. You're going to have a much better chance of succeeding. You don't need a glamorous office, yeah. <laughs> as I proved. Mm. I became a supplier for boots and in my two-bedroom flat in Brixton. But isn't that a wonderful, encouraging story for people who are listening, that you don't need to go all out? But you just said, Sean, rule out the chance of failure, whereas often on this podcast, some of the most inspiring stories we hear are about people who have, in a sense, failed, but they've picked themselves up and they've learned and they've taken risks. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I didn't know whether if I was going to be a success, but there's elements in there where you can look at and mm. say, actually, that's a risk which is working against you, which you can easily remove because you want to obviously greater the chance for your success. But even that is still at a risk yeah. because we're entrepreneurs. But whatever card is dealt you, you'd like to think that, well, I de-risked everything I could 
that's just business, you know. Mm, I agree with you. You know, I think what you have to do is really know and own your product. Live, breathe, sleep, everything. But how much money did you have to outlay to get this app researched and up and running? So I as well sort of iterated and, and did it very small scale to begin with. Using my own money, I was also working as a consultant. So I was working part-time doing that, part-time doing the app. And then I got a Virgin startup loan, which was great. So, so that- how did it tell us? Because obviously we love hearing Virgin yes, stories. Yes. How did you hear about that and how hard was it to get? So I think I came across it online and it came at a time where I thought I need to go again up a level. I need a bit more cash. I'm not ready to fundraise, as it were. Still need to develop the product and develop the concept. So, you know, I went along and put my pitch together and um, it was successful. And they've been so supportive ever since. I mean, I still speak with Virgin Startup. Haven't you just gone through a round of investors? Yes, yes. So I'm delighted. So we closed um, a month ago. So we did the Virgin loan and then did another sort of seed small round. And then we just completed this round of just over half a million, which was fantastic. Uh, It was actually quite challenging. It took sort of a good six months to do. What were the challenges? Because this is going to help people listening, being inspired. Totally. Well... I had people come and say to me that they thought that the market was too small. They thought that the business was too early stage. They thought that, you know, the team was young. So there's a lot of pushback. A team lot of was people, young? Is it yeah, an issue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, like, absolutely. And so I had a lot of pushback from a lot of people and some positives, obviously. So we got some early investment. And then over the summer, things were slow. And then just recently, something happened. Something happened in the uh, the tide changed. And I had people knocking down my doors to close the round. It was interesting. Just something changed. There was a confidence. There was, yeah. you know, we progressed to a degree. And actually, yeah, as I said, we overfunded the round. So it was good. Did you usually find that's like an MOT for yourself as well as your business? I think oh, that, totally. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Totally. You know, people call you out on certain things um, and they challenge you and they make you think about the business in ways that, you know, you wouldn't have thought of otherwise. And it's hard. It's hard. And you get knocked back. When you get knocked confidence. back then, because this is one of the things, and I've had the privilege of hosting this podcast for a while now. Yeah. To see the number number of entrepreneurs who are indomitable they will not be knocked down they will well, yeah. they will be knocked down but they will get up again and i wonder if that's a genetic disposition almost that there are certain people who can deal with it and certain people who can't or can you teach yourself something like that you must know sean you how did, bad did, did, did you feel after dragon's yeah. den you know what? it was interesting with the dragon's den experience because it was never my route to market mm. you know i don't say pressurize a friend of I kept saying, go on, go on, go on, whichever. But the bottom line is you went on and I got the show and, and I got some great publicity out of it. Mm-hmm. I still had a business plan, regardless of whether, as my friend said, well, you don't have to accept their offer. I said, well, you can't accept what you want an offer, can you? So, <laughs> so for me, I was in the same position, leaving, as when I went in. Because you own 100% of your company. Yeah, but also as well, I had a route to market. Mm. You know, I pitched to the Dragon, all oh, the filming was in August, and basically I launched in October, October. the 13th. So, and the show had moved, apparently, from Manchester to London and it was delayed so we basically went out that year in October so actually after the trade show as well so not before so So for me I carried on with it I had a business plan Venetia Absolutely. Multiple routes. I mean, you can never put your eggs in one basket. I mean, I totally understand where you're coming from. You probably had all of these other leads. And this is what I did this summer. I was building up other leads. I thought, okay, if this doesn't happen, I'm going to have to do something else. So we built a crowdfunding page. We didn't end up doing it, but it was there waiting in the wings in case. Because at the end of the day, like when you're running a startup, when you have a business that you want to succeed, there is no plan B. You have to succeed and therefore you have to hedge 
You know. When it's something like an app, which mm. is not a physical on the shelves product, yeah. how do you reach new customers? How would I find you? How would you reach me, for example? So, this is what we love doing. This is what we're actually quite good at. And it's by being creative. We do thousands of different things from, from reaching out to influencers on Instagram to digital marketing campaigns on Facebook, pay per click, etc., to pop ups. So, we've done a um, Ruby residency at Harvey Nichols through partnering with brands. So, we work with Estee Lauder's Darfans to do a Darfan facial. So we reach out to their clientele and fans. And so all of the above, piggybacking with other brands, partnering with other brands and reaching out to influencers would be kind of two of the biggest. But it's really interesting because you are pitching at quite a high-end market, I would say. Yeah. And I now watch people who come into salons that maybe I go to or I see who they will save their money to have that experience. People really believe in treating themselves to luxuries, yep. even if they haven't got enough money to do certain other things. What do you think that's about? What are you tapping into there? I think I totally agree with you. I remember, you know, a few years ago, back pre-2008, everyone was buying the designer handbag. Everyone was spending all of the mm. cash on these big products. And people don't do that now. We're all spending money on the small lifestyle products that contribute to our daily well-being, whether it's a manicure, whether it's a green juice, whether it's like a little treat for oneself. And I think it's about that. Also, um, I was told very recently that no longer do people just want things. They want experiences. So yes. they want good yes, hair yeah. as the result of your thing. They um, want an experience. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think I see that a lot more. You're listening to the Voom podcast and we're talking about the industry of beauty and well-being today. And as we discussed in the beginning of the podcast, it's a vast and varied industry and sometimes it's very difficult to break through with a new product. The cosmetics industry is in particular very fierce. Every so often, a new company succeeds and often it's a company with good ethics. Sarah Hancock is the founder of Skin and Tonic. Here she is to tell her story. I'm Sarah Hancock. I'm the founder of Skin and Tonic. We're a minimal organic British skincare company that launched in Hackney in 2014. We've grown pretty rapidly in the past couple of years. We're now in 150 stores worldwide in 15 countries, places like Anthropology, Selfridges, Whole Foods, Planet Organic, Urban Outfitters, Goop in the States. So I don't come from the beauty industry. That's not my background. My background was actually in branding and television. And I was inspired to launch Skin and Tonic in 2012 Um, because I was diagnosed with something called endometriosis, which is an endocrine disorder that affects hormones in women, um, and it can affect your fertility. And I started to kind of make lifestyle changes, so I started to exercise more and eat kind of healthy food. I gave up drinking and smoking. And then I read an article in the European Environment Agency report about endocrine disrupting chemicals in skincare Um, and I kind of went home that night and started to look through my bathroom cabinet and realized that I was putting all kinds of nasty things on my skin and yeah just kind of freaked out about it to be honest started doing more and more research and decided I wanted to use some kind of clean organic skincare 
and then when I started shopping for it, I just didn't really find anything that appealed. Everything was very kind of hippie and earthy and just didn't speak to me. It didn't feel young or relevant. So it kind of inspired me to set up skin and tonic. <laughs> um, so I ended up quitting my job, retraining. I spent nearly ooh, two years retraining in skincare formulation and aromatherapy with Neil's Yard Remedies. And then I persuaded my, my partner, who at the time was a video editor, Josh, to join me in my mission. And together we launched Skin and Tonic. And the idea behind the brand is, yes, it's organic and it's clean, but it's also unisex and it's very minimal. So we only use a maximum of seven ingredients in each product. I think I do consider myself a bit of an accidental entrepreneur. I think it's something that I felt very, very passionate about. And when I started realizing what was going on in the beauty industry, there was a lot of greenwashing. So a lot of the big beauty brands would use terms like natural or organic. It's like marketing terms. So people would think they were buying a natural product, but actually it was full of lots of very nasty chemicals. So I became quite impassioned with that and kind of got this vision in my head and couldn't get it out. So it just had to happen. <laughs> Leaving my career was a really big step. And I, in all honesty, I probably spent about a year just thinking about it. And it took a lot of persuading of myself, really, and friends and family who all just thought I was a bit bonkers. <laughs> and when I look back, I, I kind of guess I was, but I, I don't know, sometimes in life you just gotta, you gotta go with your gut. But I think once you take a step in the right direction, I certainly found or we found that there was a bit of a domino effect and there was a momentum that started to build and it's only continued to do that. It's only continued to kind of snowball. So in the early days when we were launching and we were on really tight budgets, actually before we even launched, I started connecting with bloggers, which was really, really important for us and having conversations with them and tapping into the green beauty blogging community, which is pretty huge now. That kind of created a momentum around the brand before we even launched, which then had a kind of knock-on effect to journalists. So journalists started hearing about us, which meant we got really amazing press coverage. I think also, you know, in terms of the products, I think what we've seen is a real movement from the food industry. So the food industry is all about, has recently moved into kind of organic and whole food and home-cooked food and... It was quite interesting because that it started off in the food industry, but now it seems to be migrating into beauty. So we've seen like the organic beauty market's grown 20% year on year. There's, there's massive growth in organic beauty. Um, and I think people are just becoming more conscious about what they're putting onto their skin. We hope to continue to expand our footprint both in the UK and internationally. Um, international business has been really important for us as a small startup. I would say about 35% of our revenue is from international. We're seeing big growth in markets like France and Germany, um, Denmark, Sweden. So we're going to continue to go, go with those markets. And ideally, I would really like to see us have um, concept stores eventually because I think we're trying to do something different and disruptive with the brand. And I think it's got strong enough kind of legs 
to do that and to create a really interesting environment and space for people to shop in. Um, so, yeah, we'd like to do that kind of internationally, eventually, <laughs> but still early days. Watch this space, exactly. <laughs> Skin and Tonic founder Sarah Hancock there. And you can find more entrepreneurial, inspirational stories over at virgin.com. You're listening to the Voom podcast with me, Nikki Bady, and my guests today are Sean Palfrey, Tangle Teaser Man, and Venetia Archer from Ruby, the app. That's Ruby with a W. So, Sean, Tangle Teaser is sold now in, is it well over 60 countries? Yes, it's, we're pretty global from the word go. You know, we've always seen ourselves as a global company. And you export, I said this at the beginning, is it nearly one million products? How, uh, how much a month? We, we started off in the first year, as we said, all our manufacturing is done in the UK, so we could obviously, you know, as far as the stock went, it was just in time. Mm. 35,000 Tangle Teasers made in the first year, so the, for the whole year we did 35,000. Right. We now currently manufacture, it's just shy of a million a month. Oh, and, oh goodness. And uh, 81% of that is exported overseas. And we have had additional products to the line, so what's, we're obviously famous for the original detangling, uh, original one we've obviously got we got a compact and a shower one we've now gone into blow styling brushes and we have finishing tools so we basically extended the range and the tools are as innovative as the detangling so as I have seen in I, a bag I, of goodies I, I, on the other side I, of the absolutely. glass absolutely and, and uh, you know we, we you know it took me two and a half years and I think having the reputation of a tool that has obviously took everything by storm is anything you're going to be coming out with has to have that attached to it. So basically our blow styling brushes, our smoothing tools, is that the difficulty that you've had in the past working with the tool, we've made the tool so intelligent, it's like having a built-in hairdresser. So it's a you-can-do attitude. So, mm. you know, when women go, oh, my God, I can't do my hair. Can't. Oh, yes, you can. You can. It's a, it's, you can do it, yeah. But there is something else that I notice about your product, and that is, one, it's really tactile, everything. Mm -hmm. So you talked about the polymer people that you went to. I think I could now. I think you have a, so much of an identity. I'd go, that must be a Tangle Teaser product. And so I don't need another one, but I bought a silver one because it yes. looked good in my handbag. Absolutely. I have multiple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what? But we have, we have a certain set to the product, which is the compact one, which is great. Mm. You know, yeah, put it in your handbag. But that, that means that women are brushing the hair, you see, because yeah. it like smartens the hair up. Where women tended to say, just do the hair, and then didn't, they, you know, didn't brush through it. So. Well, like me today. <laughs> I can't tell you, everybody listening, how embarrassed I am to be sitting at this table with rat's tails. Oh my and gosh. in fact, I have extensions, and they've all fallen out on one side. But Sean has shown we, me a way to deal with this. We've already discussed yes, that we for have. the future. Yes, so have. I have a yes. personal investment in today's yeah. show. Sorry, I interrupted <laughs> no, everybody, please. didn't I? <laughs> so when you were trying to get your product initially into places, mm. were you having to do physical pitches to retailers? Were you standing in front of them and, and talking <clears> to them? That's where the Dragon's Den did help. And again, it's a physical product. You can look, you can see it. And I always said to myself that if the Dragon's don't get it, there's got to be a thousand mothers out there in mm. blue. And then they did. The website on the day, that the evening, that the show was there, it crashed at about uh, 1,500 orders. It just mm. went down. So in the beginning, you know, we had a lot of mums and, you know, obviously just hailing the product. And again, those kind of emotional stories that were coming out, I mean, it doesn't take long in the world of social media for that to come to light. So again, we always knew it was, with it being an innovation, innovation is hard to sell. And here you've got a handleless, a handleless brush. Yeah. Why is it handleless? Because I don't want you blow drying with it. I don't want you a jack of all trades. This is the tool that was 
is made for detangling only. Mm. The experience that the consumer had was, I have one brush and it does everything. Right. Now, if I'd have known what I'd have known now, and then it's like, mm. <laughs> are you going to release a handleless brush? It's going to be bright pink. And <laughs> good luck. <laughs> <laughs> but you're obviously good at pitching. Yeah. And you are too, Venetia. So a Very. word of advice mm -hmm. from both of you to somebody listening now who's got to go and make pitches. Now, this has to be generalised because we absolutely. don't know what no, they're no, pitching, no, but some general, general uh, I, I, advice. I, I, absolutely. Um, look at all what you're going to be saying. Strip it back. Ask, is it relevant? Doesn't have to be longer. You don't have to do a journey to get there either. So again, just keep it absolutely relevant of what, not what they want to hear, what you are, what mm. you're about. Don't waffle. Don't be afraid that you're being judged or anything like that. Tell them about what you've got. Be excited. This is what I have. Tell it as it is. Get well, excited about it. It's obviously worked for you. Also, it's oh, so yeah. lovely you're still excited and that's so oh, refreshing. Exception. Yeah. With all the advice that we're here giving it, I'm still taking it. Yeah. Because, you know, I've got my, you know, amazing new products. I've still got to sell them. John Cleese once said to me that there is nothing quite as gorgeous as an enthusiast in a room. Okay. And he means somebody like you, somebody who is excited about something. I, I, I absolutely. Here, you, can, you can just see yes, it. People, love, just, passion. people I, love passion. Absolutely. It's been great. Yeah. So, Venetia, you have obviously yeah. had to presumably pitch to salons and clientele who are, like you said, Estee Lauder's Dauphin mm -hmm. brands. Yes, have you had experiences where you thought, oh, I could have done that better? Or have you always managed to do this perfectly? Oh, no. Every single time I pitch, it gets better. Every single time I learn something that I could have done better, I could have answered that better. Um, I should have said this. I should have said that. And it will continue to. I mean, we're always learning um, and we're always iterating as well. The product's always changing. But I think, you know, the, like passion is key. That's why we're here. That's why we've built these products, these brands, because we love what we do. And they wouldn't be successful if we didn't. And I think for me, a lot of the feedback that I get from people who, who obviously love the concept, but they say it's my and my team passion to do it that really, really excites them too. If you have a novelty, it is exactly that, a novelty it will mm. wear off. And you would imagine, you know, once somebody's got one tangle teaser, not that it's a novelty, Absolutely. it's a necessity no, 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 to no. some people. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But but the fact that you keep evolving this, mm. I mean, I think about when I was a child and there were Denman hairbrushes then, or there were Kent bristle yeah, brushes, yeah, yeah, yeah. things like yeah. Mason and Pearson. Did, did, yeah, but, but, but will they, so do you see that tangle teasers will be there in 20 generations time, in whatever iteration? Oh, yeah. Definitely. And how much is the fact that you're now exporting? Well, you say you were exporting mm. from the beginning. Yeah. How much of that is important to you? I mean, could you just have done well in a local market or were you always uh, aiming we, to be uh, global? We do very well in England today. I mean, obviously, it's still a benchmark for all the other all the other distributors. Um, I think the thing that I found really um, well fantastic about it is that you don't have much cultural difference with the hair. So what about black hair? Do you, you export to certain African countries? You would be absolutely amazed how... Now, only black companies usually target the black population with the, obviously with their kind of hair type. Yeah. My tools work amazing on the black hair. We've actually done the black hair and afro shows. The the way that the smoothing tools work and they don't pull the hair, it's, it's opening a whole new sector for them where they don't have to use it. It's just uh, amazing, yeah. So we it does do all the hair types, but most importantly, you don't have that cultural barrier. As I say, 80% of what we have as a business model here in mm. the UK works overseas, except you always have to put salt and pepper on it. 
Absolutely. You give them the 80% and let them salt and pepper it because that's their culture. So uh, tips for building international exports then. What would you say you have to do? I tell you, the, the help out there now, or should we say the advice mm-hmm. to give you these channels is amazing. The, the UKTI, which is now, I think, the trade expert, I think they changed the name around, but... All in all, that they are so geared to helping British companies sell overseas. I mean, I sell in China. I sell plastic hairbrushes to China. <laughs> you know, I, I was looking, thinking, well, you know, because we're obviously really ramping up there. And I said, oh, well, maybe I might have to manufacture in China. I don't want to. And they said, if it's manufactured in China, we don't want it. It's mm. got to be made in Britain. So a few people out there, if you've got British products... Go to the UKTR, you the, the export, let's export. Honestly, they want British products. Now, there must be something similar for apps, for your apps to... Uh, well, for you, the app can be presumably used anywhere, but you've got to have the local businesses exactly coming into it. So what's your next step, Venetia? So we're currently looking at the international market and deciding which cities to go into next year. Um, and I think, obviously, you know, the tech is transferable, but we also need to scale some of our database and infrastructure, etc. But what's going to be the big challenge is the operation. So mm. that's, and, and I've never done this before, so it's the next thing to figure out. Yeah. But as you say, you know, there's yeah. a, you know, a lot of advisory yeah. bodies and, and we have a strong yeah. support network. But for us, it will be setting up an operation as, and a small team in the next city and going from there. Do, do, do you think there's sometimes when these apps grow that they lose their core value? And sometimes you think, oh my God, I'm going into these cities, but maybe I may be too small. But you think, well, stay to your core value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that will last. Because sometimes I tend to feel that when things start to to grow that it's diluted it's never what it was to a limited degree so that's a really no, interesting yeah, point yeah. and I always say and I, you can see businesses not that you will be no no you want the best and that is yeah. brilliant absolutely brilliant for sure and and I and I see certain companies I'm like that one's built with love and that mm. one's not yeah, your yeah. tangle is that that's built with love and so is Ruby yeah, yeah, and yeah. it sounds kind of cheesy but yeah. as I look around and as I sort of identify and observe different brands that's something that sticks out now can yeah. you patent an app um, no, I don't think so. We can we can patent certain technologies. Yes. So we really, really, really try and innovate on our technology. We've got a fantastic CTO. He came to us from Net-A-Porter. We're building some really cool stuff around live availability, around surge pricing, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll be able to possibly patent certain parts of that. Okay. And what about you, Sean? Patenting must be... I, I'm, I'm, I bet yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. Tell well, us. Do, do, well, uh, I have a pattern on the original detangler. Obviously, you get uh, the, the one on the shape as well, which is very identical because you don't have the, the handle that's good. Uh, the smoothing tool, we have a design registration application for the actual tooth itself. It's a single item because no one's done that before. Oh. And then we have pa- about three paints on the overlapping c- configuration of it, the way that it works. So, And that is transferable to about... We've got about 100. We have our own IP actually in... I call them the IP police. Go get them. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, we take that very seriously. But then again, all right, let, let, let me tell you something about IP when you get these patents. They are not, the, the secrecy surrounding them to get them is fine. Once you have them, unless you sell your product to make it, so for us it was always a case of not if, but when they're going to they're have counterfeit, make your brand big, make it the number one, make it the best selling, make it the one that they want. Mm. Go out and sell it. They are not a force field. You have to, they will help you with some protection. Fantastic, we're needed. But you still have to go out there and, you know, make your brand big with it. Great Nothing protects it like the real thing, straight to market, number one. Oh, yes, look at him. God, I'm oh, so excited. My. I love it. <laughs> How big is your team now at Tangle Teaser? Oh, 
Oh, I mean, love them, love them, guys. 48 staff in the office. Yes. Then we have the DC Centre, which is it's almost like uh, Indiana Jones Warehouse. I got quite emotional when I went to it. It's like these 40,000 square foot, and I just went, oh, my God, it's just amazing. You know, we've bumped on that. So we got, um, that grows constantly out there. Factory, Monday to Friday, we have two factories that we work very closely with, and they are up to about, I would say, about 250 staff. They rotation, so it's Monday to Friday, it manufactures 24 hours, and they have three different shifts. So we create British jobs, which for me, whatever n- numeral sum is put at the end of my business, for me, success in the excitement is... I've created British jobs. And How that's wonderful. I'm so proud. I'm so do so you proud. go to all the Christmas parties then? We're going to one later on. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and my mother said, every day is like Christmas with you. Aww, <laughs> you know, I got, I know, it's true. You've worked hard for it. Venetia, how big is your team at the moment? So on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> I, I started out with three. I started yeah. out with three. Yeah, okay, so, so, yeah, yeah you've yeah, really yeah, grown. Yeah. So we're, we're seven now. Mm-hmm. Um, working out of a sweet little office in West London. And yeah, watch the space. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and in terms of, I mean, you've talked a little bit, Venetia, about mm. how you've taken risks, how much you've had to do, yeah. what you set up even as a sort of safety net. So you were working all the time in case something didn't work. Yeah. Do you find that you don't have time for anything else in your life? I mean, what's your work-life balance like? Oh. I mean, that I have not figured out. I'm a workaholic. I'm right. constantly obsessing and I don't sleep enough. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I mean, I'd love to say it otherwise, but especially now it's young, it's early stage, it's make or break. I mean, so uh, that probably needs to be. Yeah, to me, someone <laughs> said, uh, what can you attribute to your success? I said, maybe being single. Because you, you only, don't have to look after you someone else. You are only answerable to yourself. Yeah, so in, in that element, you weren't risking, you know, anyone else's finance. You weren't risking a relationship. Mm. You weren't risking building a family. You could just pile everything of yourself into it, and and it still does. But. I must stress everyone out there, an entrepreneur is not a singular person. He's not one person. They do not do everything. It is a spirit. I think the early days of entrepreneurship, for me, it's like we always had, like Richard was the first, brilliant, but he, he does stick out still as a singular kind mm. of person, you know, the thing. Where now, for me, because the, the last thing I want is kids from coming out of school thinking, oh, I'm not an entrepreneur, so I'm not going to be worth anything. You are worth something, mate. Mm. You know, we need entrepreneurs, need people to come and work for us yeah. and keep this spirit. We keep the spirit going you come and join and tap into it so we are not one person we're not singular we're an organization i mm. love that it's true it's not a person it's mm. a spirit yeah, yeah how fantastic um if i asked you both to ask each other a question about your businesses venetia what would you want to know from sean I'd like to know. I mean, so you created a fantastic product. I mean, the Tangle Teaser for me, I mean, it's it's the end. As a side note, I remember the first time I ever used one or, or someone used it on me in, in a hairdresser. We now get all of our hairdressers to use the Tangle Teasers. I mean, how do you keep innovating? I think we looked at, obviously, blow styling. And, and again, we looked at what it, how it's traditionally been done with the hairdressers now. We looked at that, that was attention. We wanted to make something that was easier on the hair. And we set out on a quest. And the R&D, actually, halfway, well, three quarters of the way through, we didn't think it could be done. But we actually managed to do it. So, for me, the judges, obviously, I can say it's innovative. But I always look and say, I'm the consumer. Is the consumer going to say to me that's innovative? And the, so far, they're mm. saying yes, because mm-hmm. I dry the hair with a science that's completely different to what you have now. So less heat, less heat, you have the bounce, the swing. So you can actually see it. And when, as, as one girl said the other day, she said, I've been thinking about buying one of your blow dry brushes for two months. 
She said, I used it for the first time this morning. She said, it's the best purchase I've ever made. She said, I didn't even have to turn on my straighteners. Uh -huh. So again, you know, and, and it is because it, 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 women haven't been able to tap into that sector because basically it's a skill. You're not uh, a hairdresser. Mm. Now, you are because the brush has basically got the technology to do it. Ask yourself a question. Toothpaste, toothbrush. Makeup, makeup brush. So basically we're looking at tools to help us. And this is what we do. We make innovative tools for the hair industry so you can do your hair. We don't sell hairbrushes. We sell fabulous hair. Mm. Yay! Uh-oh. He's going to put Ruby out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sean, do you have a question to ask uh, Venetia? Yes, I Go do. Ahead. It was interesting you said about the home visits. Yes. Because I know certainly in my early days, for the first two years, I would continue to do home visits for colouring hair, for mm -hmm. the finance. Does that say, because before, I mean, I certainly didn't, <laughs> would not necessarily charge it cheaper. So, we, so the old rule of kind of going round to your house mm. as a hairdresser was, that it was cost less because I think well actually if I'm going around to get high she yeah, should pay it. more yes, yeah. exactly. exactly yeah um, well, we, we find that the prices are the same. So, okay. so the same that you'd get in the salon and Which, we try and promote okay. that. But, but if yeah. somebody's travelling out to where I live in West London, I yeah. would imagine that they would want petrol money or travel money and time money built into my manicure, my highlights or whatever they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And there's economic cost to it. And they, and with our beauty therapists, I mean, they set their postcodes. They set um, oh, the kind right. of services okay. they like. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, as we become more intelligent, we'll be able to push jobs that, that make say a lot somebody's more sense in at this time exactly do, do, don't they? actually that, I think that's, that sounds amazing because for me I had to like generate that business but mm. for someone who's in the salon thinking actually I wouldn't mind stepping out there you know a couple mm. of days in the salon and then work for myself doing this and, yep. and, and stuff because obviously once it comes to them then it, the cost doesn't go through the salon it goes to them directly does it not when they go home yep. so but that, then the, 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 there's a huge amount of debate in the UK at the moment around what, the, what they call the gig economy which is mm -hmm. why you know Uber has been through that whole case and they've had to say that their employees are workers, mm. not self-employed, not... You know, there, there are all these de different definitions. Are you going to be held up to account in terms of the people who are working via your app as they are drivers via Uber? Is it the same equation working there? I don't think so. So all of our beauty therapists are self-employed. Got you. Um, so, so we are the inter intermediary yeah. um, connecting sort of supply and demand. Because yeah. all those yeah. things are so tricky, aren't they? Because you, you can have a great yeah. idea and suddenly yeah. realise, whoa, okay. Well, so, and I, I think a lot of it is to make sure that you're paying your taxes. Mm -hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? And again, like you said, I, I, I've been a self-employed hairdresser at mm. one time doing so, and then obviously one in, in, employed and everything. Yeah. But I've always paid my taxes. And I think that's what the issue is. Not so much your lifestyle and how you do it, but it's if the long is obviously contributing themselves in that's a book mm. that's great but I definitely think I mean someone gave me this advice in the early days they said get good accountants and abs, get yes, good abs, lawyers abs, abs, I yeah, swear yeah. to god yeah, I mean yeah. I, I owe my life to my accountants <laughs> and my lawyers yeah, and isn't it, you know when you say something like that, something that mm, is that sneaky it's not to give you the best advice because yeah. it's yeah. only to make sure that you're doing the right thing because exactly. if you haven't had advice it isn't like I don't want to do this yeah. I don't want to do that I'm gladly pay my taxes I have no issues with that yeah. I don't know how you're still single or were you just single in the beginning when you started the business and made it such no. a success. You know what? I, I've had, <laughs> I've had no. one relationship and someone said to me, within the relationship, Sean, you are the most selfish person 
ever. Ooh. He said, out of a relationship, you're the most loving and giving. Right. So I don't think I'm a shit, my shit mind. mind well, that's fine. Could we, we we'll take the I'd tangle say, to you. Yeah. <laughs> I never say never. <laughs> but again, I, like, as I said, I'm in a place where I am where I want to be. Mm. I've absolutely always loved my job. Right. So even when it was colouring hair, if someone said to me, well, tangle tees have failed, I said, well, I, I can go back to colouring hair. I didn't hate it. I loved it. Yeah. And, and I love what I'm doing now and it's in a different capacity. I mean, if you'd have said to me, as, as I said to someone before, I never set out to make a multi-million pound business. Mm. I set out to make a detangling hairbrush and women products that they love and that's my passion. Well, you've done well, both of you. May you both continue to go from strength to strength and I can't thank you enough for it's being it's part it's of it's the Boom podcast. I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, oh I hope you A big thank you to my guests, Sean Palfrey from Tangle Teaser, Venetia Archer from Ruby. The Voom Podcast is a Pixie production for Virgin Media Business, the ultra-fast broadband company. We'll be back soon for our last show of 2016 and we'll take a look back at some of the best advice from the past year and a look forward to emerging trends in 2017. I'll see you for that in two weeks' time. But for now, from me, Nikki Beatty, enjoy the festive season. Goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.